Hi there, this is the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling. Thank you so much for joining me. Now today, episode 57, we speak to Joe Branton from the UK band Polymath. Now, Polymath hail from the south of the UK in the beautiful seaside town of Brighton. And Joe, alongside his bandmates Tim Walters and Chris Wilson, love to weld intricate prog and math rock with the visceral force of punk. Joe's bass playing embraces the ships with a variety of meaty tones, techniques and nuance. We talk about his development as a bass player, uh, his current rig, right through to the soon-to-be-released Polymath double album, House of Wisdom. We also get the lowdown on Polymath's feature in Boss's worldwide video for the release of the MS3 Switcher Multi-Effects. Joe's a co-host on the Guitar Nerds podcast, which is where I first heard about Joe and then joined the dots to uh, find, find out about Polymath. All the tunes you hear throughout this episode are from the 2015 EP Reptiles. All right, here's my conversation with Joe. Joe Branton, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Great to have you, man. Really good. It's um, uh, it's exciting news for you for Polymath. I, I just read your crowdfunding um, project for your new album has just um, been reached in the in the dying moments. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, that's right. By the uh, yeah, by the skin of our teeth, we uh, we made it through the uh, pledge campaign. We may have so. I think the the problem that we had that we ran into there is we gave ourselves half the time that most other sort of of our peers give themselves for pledges, and okay. and I, I I assume we we were you know we were. I, uh, trying to raise a similar amount of of money it's sort of a popular thing to do in like uh in kind of the math rock community like loads of bands do it and it's something that a lot of the the supporters and fans get on board with which is which is quite nice yeah cool yeah it seems like a really good community in uh in europe for the uh for that prog math post-rock kind of scene yeah 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 definitely is yeah it's a really it's really nice really tight tight knit sort of thing and I think it's it's all because there are a number of festivals like a there's like a, a festival in um there's a festival called Dunk in uh in Belgium and there's Arctangent in Bristol in the UK that just um 
that bring all those bands together and so it's it's very much like a family all the bands all know each other there are you know facebook groups where everyone talks and we all take it in turns to go on tours with each other sort of like a nice sort of group of maybe 30 40 bands that all know each other and it just makes it makes being a part of the scene loads better because it's so much like that yeah that's cool that's heaps cool um so yeah, I definitely want to get into lots of polymath talk with you. Um, but I'm just wondering if we could go back a little bit earlier. What um, what was the inspiration for you to actually start playing bass in the first place? Um, well, I I imagine quite similarly to to most people, it was you know it's it's when you're at school and you realise that you like music. I think for for me, I grew up in um, in Watford, which is just a little. Uh, a, a, a sort of uh, an overspill town just outside of North London. And, um, and it's still now has a really vibrant punk rock scene. There's loads of kind of important UK punk bands seem to come out of Watford. Like at the moment, um, at the moment, the hell are probably the most relevant punk band coming out of there, but it's always had sort of a really strong and decent scene. And so mm-hmm. I think as soon as I, I, I got into that and realized I wanted to be a part of that, you try and start a band at school and and everyone you know is a guitarist and it was kind of it was my idea to start a band so i thought well i'll i'll you know i'll i'll take the hit and uh, be not that it was a hit but you know i, I <laughs> i'll i'll because everyone has a guitar or has access to a guitar sure and, and the, you know the only person that's actually got to buy anything really is the bass player because no one has a bass amp and no one has a bass guitar so i, I decided to be that fella but that was cool. I sort of, for for my sins, I think the first like proper record, whilst I feel my music taste went up from this point, my first my first record that I bought that made me realise that I was into music was um, Dude Ranch by Blink One Eighty Two. Okay, and yep. So yep. I was, I, and I was quite happy to be Mark Hoppus at that point. So. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. I remember that album well. I'm, I'm probably a bit older than you, but I was uh, doing a lot of guitar teaching when those Blink albums came out, and I was teaching lots of kids bass and guitar tunes off Dude Ranch and the following records. So yeah, cool. Yeah, that's right. An ultimate sort of time period, like power chord. Like it, all guitarists were only using their E and A string. Yeah, that, yeah. At that point, yes. <laughs> with a couple of riffs. And uh, yeah. <laughs> the clean breakdown section. But that, that's cool. That's cool. That would have got you um, playing fast, if, if nothing else, keeping up with that stuff. Well, that was, yeah, that, that was it. Actually, I, I never acclimatized using a plectrum. Um, and even though I was kind of trying to play punk and everything, everyone, I, all the other bass players I knew were. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I didn't. And I, I felt I, I, I liked that I was being different and original, but. At the time, I think I also felt like it because I was no, I was so inaccurate with the plectrum. The, the reason was I liked jumping around, mm-hmm. and and when you don't have your hand anchored on your instrument, it makes it makes you less accurate. And I could like just wedge my thumb on onto my bass to play fingers finger style, and it meant I could throw myself around as much as possible and still play everything right. So yeah, cool. <laughs> That's great. Were you playing a uh... You're playing a P bass like like Mark, well, I think started off. Yeah, playing. yeah, I think everyone, everyone. Yeah, I, I was obsessed with P basses for a while. Like when I when I finally got into music, that was that. Yeah, I had a Squire P bass, same as everyone else, like an Affinity P bass, which I think I've still got kicking around somewhere. Uh-huh, nice. But I think uh, uh, after that, I bought um, 
uh, what were they called? Is it OLP? They were the oh, they, yeah, the, they like were the, the Music first, Man kind yeah, of yeah, the first subsidiary of of Music Man, like the cheapy version of that. Yeah, I had yeah, a yeah. blue sparkle like Stingray. Oh, awesome! Um, yeah, that was cool. That was like the ultimate punk rock guitar, and it started my obsession with like maple uh, fretboards as well. Okay, so, yep. Um, yeah, so I had a blue sparkle one of those, and I saved up. There's one guitar shop in uh, in Watford. Uh, that was awfully, it was named Hooters. I, I, I think it's all wow. brass stuff as well. Yeah, it was terrible. Okay. It yeah, was yeah. terrible. But, um, like, I'd been given a Fender bass book uh, for a birthday or something like that, and the front cover had, like, this really relict 51 P bass, and I was like, oh, that is that is straight up the coolest thing I've ever seen. But, of course, Fender didn't do one. And then, like, sh- maybe a year after that they introduced the japanese reissue the 51 okay, but yeah, scotch yeah. p bass yeah awesome we, we, uh, but but uh, you know i was i was what like 17 i couldn't i couldn't afford a sort of 700 pound at the time um uh instrument and uh in hooters they'd uh, they managed to drop one and knock a tuner off and uh <laughs> Which was great. So I, I managed to buy that display one for four hundred pounds. Beautiful. Uh, that was that was my favourite bass I think I've ever owned, and I, I regret regret selling it. Wow, that's cool. That, that's like the Sting model, isn't it? It's got like the. Oh uh, no, because it was butterscotch instead of sunburst. Oh, the Sting okay. models, Sting models are fifty four. Okay. It has the. Um, it's not a slab body, so the fifty one's completely slab, and you've yep. got all the the contours that you actually get on like the fifty seven, which is. The 57 is the body shape that we have now okay. on the P-Base. But, but yeah, the, so the contours are the same on the 57 and the 54, but the 51 is like a John M, John M. Whistle style slab. Awesome, man. That's cool. Very cool. So when did, you, uh, when did your playing experience broaden beyond um, punk pop kind of stuff? <laughs> um, uh, I think sort of... Un- well, uh, yeah, again, like something that I guess I'm not that proud of, I... Especially after last week on the Guitar Nerds podcast, I was I was having a pop at them. But yes, I did buy Red Hot Chili Peppers albums. I think that's a, I think that's a, a natural progression. Maybe if you get into playing, and I think, uh, and but it's not it's that's not what made me progress out of punk. It was that because of listening to Flea, I then found that Flea had played on this other record called Deloused in the Comatorium by the Mars Volta, who are you know now the the most important band i've ever listened to and okay. basically everything that i base all my playing and rip everything off of wow. um and so yeah listening to delouse in the Comatorium was was the first time i realized i wanted to you know to take playing further i bought a uh, fretless bass shortly after shortly after that an old 1979 ibanez roadster with a maple neck that was so it, all, all the strings had had worn into the maple so far that you couldn't do any vibrato because they were <laughs> almost sitting in the in the board. But I I loved that bass and uh, and yeah I think that's like teaching myself fretless bass is what made me try and progress music further. I think. Who was the who's the bass player in the Mars Volta? Uh, well, it, it's uh, <laughs> it depends. They've had they've had loads. Uh, okay. The first. EP that they put out was Eva Gardner, um, but because Delouse in the Comatorium was their first album, 
Yeah. Um, and that's sort of the benchmark. People forget that Eva Gardner was the first bass player. Um, she was brilliant. Uh, she played a P bass, but basically she she left to go on tour with I think like Pink or like so, uh, maybe not Pink, but some big pop act. Okay. Uh, just as they were recording their records, so they they got in Flea, um, and and Flea guest played on that record, but was never the bass player. And after that, they got Juan Aldrich, who is yeah, you know, probably the best bass player of all time. Wow, that that's who I'm thinking of. Was he involved in like the the eighties shred scene? Was he like on yeah, that's right. records and yeah, yeah okay. he was in uh, he was in Racer X with yeah, um, that's it. That's who I'm thinking with of. Paul Gilbert. Awesome. Yeah. He used to have big hair, and he has got a great <laughs> range of like instructional bass videos on YouTube that uh, that are just really quite bizarre because he has big hair and he's <laughs> talking about how to play quickly. Yeah, awesome. That's cool. But yeah, obviously the Mars Volta stuff is um, yeah killer. Very very broad as well. Nice. Yeah. Were you doing any bands? Did you move into any bands? You know that explored this kind of stuff. Um. Yeah, I I'd sort of, to be honest, like Polymath was the first one where I actually got to. I was in, I've been in a few other bands, like I stayed in punk bands and I've, I've been in loads with, all with absolutely atrocious names. Uh-huh. And then I think I, I, for for a few years I was playing in like a pop band. My my girlfriend and uh, a couple of her friends were in a, in a pretty well-to-do like pop indie band. And this is, this is like early 2000s, so around the time that, I guess that pop indie, like, you know, sort of indie music with some synths in it was really starting to become popular, certainly mm-hmm. over here. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, they had like, they had a bass player quit like three days before a relatively big show. And she really didn't want me to be in the band because she didn't want to mix the two, but sure. they had little, little choice. And I think I just, you know, they, they still needed a bass player afterwards. So I ended up in that band for, for the longest time probably three or four years and that was that was great for like develop it was very disco and that was great for developing like octave bass playing mm-hmm. all those little double stop octaves like right hand technique that's probably the best thing like the, the best band i've been in for like developing that style but ultimately it wasn't especially what i was trying to do by by this point i'd moved down south i'd gone to university in a, a little town called chichester and which was right next to brighton where i now live and uh, there are so few magi- uh, musicians there that um, the pop band and this other sort of post-rock band used to kind of share members. They shared like a drummer and, and you know, would sort of split members depending on who was gigging where. And it's from those guys that eventually the members of Polymath uh, sort of came about and how we ended up. We just realized that the three of us really liked the Mars Volta mm-hmm. and decided to jam. And from then, sort of polymath became. Is it same three guys? So Tim Walters on guitar. Yeah, yeah, and, and Chris uh, Chris Willison on drums. Great. And yeah, yeah, it's always been, always been the the same uh, three of us sort of since the start. Cool. So I, I was aware of your first recorded output being sort of mid twenty thirteen. How, how long? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's 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 about right. We we put out like a slew of like digital singles, but I think. 2013 is about when Polymath kind of became. We, we decided to make it a band. Uh-huh. It had it had a, I guess a relatively in, interesting start because at the time Tim, our guitarist, he, he's actually a drummer first. Okay. And uh, he was uh, he was drumming in a in a 
a sort of Sigur Ross style post rock band um, called Monsters Build Mean Robots. And they were doing very well. They were playing the festival circuit, doing a lot of European tours and Polymath, which then was terribly called Fall of Empires because we couldn't really think of a name. (laughs) Uh, And we uh, we were asked to a, a slot freed up at the first ever a festival I mentioned earlier, Art Tangent. It was the first one getting all these math bands and post-rock bands together in one place in Bristol. And basically a slot freed up a couple of weeks before and Monsters Build Me Robots were playing it because they were a bigger band and they knew the the guy who ran it and he was like, oh, I've heard you've got a side project. Did you want to fill this slot? And uh, we sort of, we didn't have anything. We didn't, we, we, we had like one track recorded. We had no physical CDs. Mm-hmm. We had, it, we made like 10 T-shirts sort of you know from our mate who works for a t-shirt company sort of we, we just turned up really with nothing we made some little download cards and we thought well we were playing at like 11 in the morning on one of the smaller stages and we we figured no one knows who we are we've literally done nothing and uh you know and it it's not going to be it you know it, it, it will we'll be playing to no one and that's cool and we were just to be honest just looking forward to the rest of the festival but some magazine had put out like a 13 things that you must see at Art Tangent just before. And they'd somehow found us and included us. And so when we came to play, the tent was like filled out of the tent, which wow. was bizarre. That's that so and, good. Yeah, exactly. So for a first show, and we'd only been playing for maybe six months at that point. And, um, and yeah, we before we finished playing we'd sold all the t-shirts all the download cards had gone and we sort of had a chat after that and we're like well, maybe we should actually take this seriously and do this as a thing interested in, in how you guys write because the music is um, super riffy and uh, super textural like between the three of you you cover so much ground um, how do you guys write stuff how do you write songs do people bring in riffs or how do you do that yeah it's it, it tends to be that we sort of I, I guess uh, for the for the most part um, Tim will uh, will write stuff at home using his on his pedal board and, and record it into an app and he'll he'll bring sort of some ideas and there'll be bits they won't be tracks they'll be he'll bring in three or four individual sections and we'll we'll learn the notes design a drum beat for it and then sort of between the three of us we'll then normally change the time signature shift it up start taking the riff apart um 
and and playing part of it you know just doing the weirdest things we can Mm -hmm. with it and and then basically when we build up a few a few sections we start trying to knit them together and design other sections that will help us knit them together and eventually we'll end up with a with a track which is kind of why i think we can get carried away which is why sometimes we can like the record we've just recorded like the second song on on the record is 18 minutes long so it's sort of we can get carried away <laughs> but that's great you've got you've got a lot of room to do that so yeah. I, I think that's going to be 18 minutes well spent when uh <laughs> when we get to hear that that's super cool um one thing I, one thing that struck me the first time I, I saw and heard you because the first my first experience was um, watching a video you guys had put together the music um, was so visceral so you know I mean there's obviously yeah a lot lot of multimeter time shifting and these very angular riffs which is I guess in one sense very brainy um, but you're also just laying into them with with um, with you know, like a punk rock aggression which. I think uh, combined with the, the intricacy, which I, I really loved. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we we, we do try and we try and keep that uh, a bit of a punk rock feel to to it as much as we can. Mm-hmm. I think we we we're quite different, or I guess everyone thinks that. But we, I I think of us as being different from all the other math bands on the scene. Well, first start, I don't think we're a math band. We're we're a prog band that have been lumped in with the math genre because because it's the closest thing anyone can think to put us in. Uh-huh. But there, there's, I never think there are enough, like just big riffs in, in math that there's a, there's a lot of obsession with intricacy, which is, which is cool, but they they can sometimes misplace the intricacy and forget to write something for people to, you know, to dance to i guess is the thing we try and keep our riffs whilst we want them to be complicated and yeah we we kind of write for musicians i guess in that we want them to be weird and we want people to appreciate that this is a weird time signature or a very unusual note choice we want that to be the case but we don't want it to be you know we don't want it to be unlistenable mm-hmm. as well we it, it needs to be more than just fast complicated playing and I guess that's the aim, anyway. Yeah, cool. Very cool. The um, up until now, probably the the recording I'm most um, familiar with is Reptiles, which is probably yeah. about eighteen months old or so now. That was your your six track EP. Um, yeah, that's right. But you've just finished. Have you finished actually recording the new album, House of Wisdom? We are the devil. Yeah, um, yeah. We we have sort of finished recording it. So we finished tracking all the real life instruments so um we we did all that over the course of two weeks at brighton electric studio um and there are still a couple of bits to do because we're we're this is our first like complete concept piece so this this record will tell a story as well so there's there's narration and there's there's a a lot of spoken stuff and also we've got really we've got really into binaural recordings and things like that and and field recordings so we've got a whole separate session where we're we're going to re- we're going to be manipulating all the narration that we'll get and um, and and messing up some of the field recordings and then working those into the uh, the, the tracked music and stuff. So we've done things like uh, we we got a, a binaural recording of um, 
the sound of the call to prayer uh, outside the Blue Mosque in Marrakesh. It's, it, 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 this is the most pretentious thing we've ever done. But <laughs> it's uh, we, we wanted because the, the whole the House of Wisdom is based on the Houses of Wisdom, which were giant libraries in uh, in Baghdad in the 12th century, which uh, were kind of the first uh, the first Internet because they had everything. They had information on like all religions, history, mathematics and science that was so ahead of where the West was at the time. It was such a, a progressive city. And in, I think, 1253, Genghis Khan and the Mongolians invaded. They um, they sacked the, the Houses of Wisdom and they threw all of the manuscripts into the, the River Tigris. And the, the, the reason we got onto this was because I was reading about it and the the sort of story, which obviously probably isn't true, but the story goes that there were so many manuscripts that the the river ran black with ink. Um, and, and we just, I thought that idea was very poetic and, and obviously a complete tragedy. So we wanted to, we kind of wanted to make the whole, and I don't think the story is that well known either. So we kind of wanted to tell that story through the music, through sort of themes in what we're playing. And so that, that hence us wanting to get, field recordings mm -hmm. of the sound of call to pair and things like that actually on our kickstarter we had one of the things that you could or not it wasn't a Kickstarter; it was a pledge but on our pledge um one of the options you had were, was to be on the record and um we we send out if you sign up for that then we send you some script and you you can record that however you want you could record it on a phone send it back to us and then we're gonna manipulate all all of those all of the those bits and those will be the narrated uh, passages on the record. Wow, that's cool. Very cool. That's awesome, man. How do you um? So how do you translate some of those stories into musical ideas? It's there. I mean, that part is quite rudimentary in that we um, we know if we want a kind of a pondering section or an aggressive section. Um, it, it's it's it, that side of it is quite simplistic mm -hmm. um we we wanted something very raucous and and dark and atonal uh for um for the part of the story when we're getting towards the 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 sacking of baghdad um and and we wanted because uh, th there was a, a period where rather than fielding their own army the um uh the the caliphate in in Baghdad thought that their walls were unconquerable. So they just did nothing. They just left a Mongolian army outside and we wanted quite a pompous sounding piece for that. So it's, it's kind of, it is as rudimentary as trying to get across mm -hmm. some sort of basic idea and then relying on the, the, the narration to, to actually flesh it out. Nice. Very cool. So what's the, um, what's the timetable from here for the, uh, the release of the album? Um, we the album's coming out in November, um, so yeah, I think uh, I think our, we're doing a little sort of UK and Europe headline tour, um, and so I think November fourth uh, that will that will come out. Um, so so yeah, we'll see. We sort of gave us this much time because we um, we we figured we'd 
need to release it ourselves uh, rather than going to a label just because we wanted to put out a double album mm-hmm. it's going to be so expensive to press that w- when we'd pitch this to um to uh, some labels who would normally be interested in taking our stuff they were all no one had quite said no but we weren't getting anywhere with anyone because they were all aware of the fact that we wanted this double vinyl with a a reversible spine so that you could have a different cover on each side and okay. like, the, yeah. the whole thing was so elaborate that no one no one could really afford a, i think to, to put sure. the record out but but kind of since the pledge campaign and stuff and i guess a bit more information's got out there there have been um some labels who are sort of back talking to us again so i guess we'll we might we might well not self-release now but we'll see so we've got we've got till november to get everything in order anyway okay that's great. You know, I just love that whether you are backed by a label or not, you've you've taken on something very ambitious and and large in in the digital age. It's so easy to release digital EPs or digital singles, and you guys have obviously done that. But um, yeah, I think it's really great that you've uh, you've made a very conscious decision to step it up. And however you're going to release it, you've uh, you've created the product for that to that end. That's awesome. Oh, cheers, man. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, I, I think that was that was the idea. We, we, it, we, we had this discussion when because we, we, you know, we had good friends of ours who were in bands or on good labels, and they're all telling us like, don't do a double album. Like, you know, this is <laughs> you, you're in a you're in a good position after sure. the, after Melancholia. For if you put out a record, you know, you get you get picked up by some relatively decent labels, and there have been a couple of bands in our sort of small genre have retired or split up recently. There's room for us. And, mm-hmm. um, but we, we kind of thought, well, if we start doing that, it sort of defeats the point of why we decided to be in a band that just wants to do the, the idea is that we're doing whatever we want. And we know that it's pretentious. We know it's ridiculous. And we, we just, we just want to do it anyway. So, yeah. So we decided to go ahead with the, with the double album regardless of its definite stupidity <laughs> that's great now that's really cool really really cool and um yeah i mean you guys have been busy not only putting out the album but um the the video promo you guys did for for boss and the the ms3 that that looked like a cool thing yeah yeah that was great i mean obviously we that that was through virtue of uh, me doing the Guitar Nerds podcast with Matt Knight, yep. is the assistant European manager of Boss Marketing. I don't actually know his exact job title, but uh-huh. you know th- that that was through through that. But uh, kind of handy because the guy who's in charge of Matt is a, a fella called Jamie Dor, who is obsessed with the Mars Volta. Okay. Um, so <laughs> now that him and Matt are kind of in a position of power in Boss, <laughs> I think you'll notice a lot of a lot of the marketing is going to become more aimed at at kind of proggy math, you know, post-rocky music musicians, just because because <laughs> that's what they're into. But but yeah, that was a that was a really good video. It was a really nice thing to to get to do, um, and and I think helped us because we were obviously just about to put a pledge campaign out at the time. Uh, the the uh, the MS3 itself is is actually a great product for sort of. It, for bands like us, just because everyone has these ludicrously massive pedal boards, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of a, a a high quality switcher with built-in effects 
you know it, it does actually deal with with loads of uh, with loads of problems it was a bit of a trick actually to record that the track for that because matt got us the ms3 about a week before okay we had to record yeah. and uh and it was uh they were prototypes and so not all the functions worked on them at that point uh-huh. and so we were kind of we were trying to write working around the fact that that we could only use so much of it but um but it was it was great in the end yeah cool oh that's great the um so it was obviously used by boss europe um i know boss australia were, were using that video as well so um great here so i don't know you you probably know more than me was it used in other territories as well like did it make it to the states or, or asia yeah 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 it did actually yeah it was wow. uh, it was used in in all territories which was really nice um, that is awesome and what was good because of course the, the way facebook works certainly when they share the video on facebook uh i can't i won't i wouldn't see the advert if it was done for, for australia or you know, if it was done for the states but uh-huh. If someone tags me, yes. In if someone tags Polymath, I suddenly can see that thread, and it, inevitably we ended up being tagged in all of them. And I, I really enjoyed. I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, because of the nature of my job working for a guitar shop and doing so much YouTube stuff, um, and being in charge of like social media for it. I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, negative comments. Um, I really <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> I really enjoy uh, reading when people get wound up on uh, on the internet about about various <laughs> things. It's fun, and it was uh, it was it was fun seeing uh, how different reactions were in different territories. Like we went down really well in the UK, yeah. uh, sort of pretty well in the UK. In Australia, it was probably the best. Like the comments were so consistently great. Okay, and. Um, and in America, we got an absolute hammering, uh, which, which, was, <laughs> <laughs> which was great. But That's uh, interesting. It, it, wow. it was, yeah, it was it was funny seeing such different, such different sort of um, you know comments on depending on the on the territory. Wow, but, yeah. wow. What was the um, what was the problem in the US with uh, well, the, what was their problem? <laughs> uh, I should say. Uh, they uh, they did not like the way we dressed. Uh, they they had a, a real <laughs> a real problem with uh, with our skinny jeans. Wow! They didn't like that at all. And, so not uh, so much the music, but just the yeah yeah. It was it was all the comments were no, yeah nothing was about the music. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, That's well, yeah, just not not a fan of the of the skinny jeans. Wow! There you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe that gives you some wardrobe ideas if you tour. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Shores. If I'm going, if I'm going over to the states, I know to buy something back here. <laughs> well, that's handy. That's good info. Very cool. I noticed you've been using um, Stonefield bases lately. What's the story yeah. there with you and them? Yeah. Well, um, well, Stonefield, uh, I think, showed up for the for the first time. The first time I'd seen them um, was at the London bass guitar show in 2015 mm-hmm. i think and um i uh i went there obviously like for for guitar nerds and um i hooked up with my friend jd who um who lives in california and he he works for eden amplification mm-hmm. and uh he was uh he was there with his his mate chris better known as freak bass uh who is uh an an eden indoor c and kind of like a you know, a, a, 
a very well known and really great funk bass player. And um and there was the Stonefield stand was there and it was huge and it's this new thing and they they looked they looked incredible but also I, I didn't actually try one then because they were so I went and looked and you know they they had some bits and bobs out on the stand and you know I had a chat and looked at them and stuff but they they looked so uh beyond what I mean the, they're so they're, they're like really premium instruments so the the price point was above what I could afford and I sort of looked at them being like this is something amazing that I will never have access to and uh-huh. uh we as it turned out, uh, Chris Freakbase ended up having a, a chat with Tom Stanley, and uh, that was what started his relationship with them. He he now has a signature model made with Stonefield, um, but it wasn't until, and, and of course I'm, I'm still friends with Chris and stuff, so I'd spoken to him about it. But it wasn't until, um, it wasn't until kind of the the next year when Stonefield came back and they got they managed to get distribution with a a UK distributor called Z Music, who oh, okay, yeah. also do, they also distribute Ormsby. Ormsby, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, cool. um, so and, and because I'm, uh, you know, sort of, you know, no Perry and stuff, and, and, and I was, I'm very much behind the Ormsby brand, I went yeah. to sort of see what Z had, and said, but like, oh, we actually have Tom Stanley over, if, if you want to meet him, he'll bring some bases and stuff, and, uh, uh, and he did, and I checked them out, and they were absolutely, you know, they were all completely brilliant. And then, um, I mean, actually, the, the whole, the, me, me uh, becoming an endorsee for Stonefield came from, uh, I, t- I contacted Zed a few weeks later when I found out I was going to do this boss video. Mm-hmm. And because I got on so well with Tom, I was like, look, if you've, if you've got a, a Stonefield in stock, I could play it for the video and I wasn't that, that was, that was it. I wasn't trying to get an endorsement. I was yeah. just like, I, I'd like to support the brand cause they're great. I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't looking for an endorsement because the bases are still four and a half thousand pounds. You uh-huh. know, wow. <laughs> they're, they're a, a lot of money. So I, I was just offering to help and they, they put me in touch with Tom Stanley and he was so good. And he was like, well, how about instead of you playing it this once you could be the UK ambassador for Stonefield brilliant and so uh, so yeah it's kind of all all came from there so good they're really interesting bases in that um even just down at the bridge end they've got like a really high-tech um tailpiece uh yeah. and then a wooden bridge yeah they this is what i i love these bases because they were kind of designed from the ground up completely differently from anything else mm-hmm. i'd ever seen i loved that they managed to completely bridge like something so traditional and something so modern so with the the huge tuning system the tom stanley tuning system as it's known okay um which which is which is great and in insanely accurate and and great at like holding your tune i've never i'd never appreciated that that was a thing and i've never cared about tuners before like you know when people like this stays in tune it's like yeah sure but you know on a sweaty stage you still need to check your tuning Mm -hmm. after every song and it you know i I didn't. <laughs> I don't have to anymore, which is wow. which is great. But, but the it's it's the floating bridge that was really the thing that a floating wooden bridge was the thing that made me really check out these bases because it means that you can get this this really old school kind of look. What I love about fretless bases that sort of uh, 
slow attack sound. Um, you can kind of get that out of Stonefield, but because it has it has like a mid shift system on it, so it, it's completely passive. But you have um, you've got you've got treble and bass cut mm-hmm. on there, so it's it's kind of set up like an active bass for controls, but it's passive, so you're taking away rather than adding. But you've got a treble and bass cut, and then you've got a mid shift, and you've got six different. Uh, positions on the shift and then you can pop the bass switch and you get another six so you and they all cut a different range of mids so it it it's incredibly versatile in that you can you you can really really shape a sound which is which is great but it, it kind of means that i've i've worked out like a couple of mid positions which mixed with my compressor and my preamp mean that i can go from this kind of really like old school because i really like i really like doing this sort of mariachi thing and i can kind of go from playing those sort of walking bass lines sounding really like low attack and old school and then like with a flick of the mid shift it can be kind of an aggressive precision bass style instrument which which is killer yeah and the, awesome. the necks the necks on the stonefield basses are that they're bigger than anything else and they they shouldn't be playable like they're they're unbelievably deep and wide and they they give a whole new like meaning to the term like baseball bat neck um and they shouldn't be it it shouldn't work but it does and they feel great the only problem i have now is i had to do a uh i had to do a demo video with like a a yamaha bb the other day Mm -hmm. and i could barely play it because i'm just so (laughs) used to this ridiculous neck and there's nothing wrong with a bb neck it's normal size yeah but yeah it just felt felt like i was playing a toy <laughs> wow that's that's really cool yeah they look amazing those bases and um cool to hear what you're getting up to with them i like the idea of the the mid mid shifting that sounds cool i mean especially for um for polymath because you're shifting tones so often um yeah yeah that's cool to be able to just do it from your bass just uh yeah that mid emphasis yeah yeah exactly yeah it's it's it is something that i've not encountered on other instruments and sure like a a lot of bass players don't even want tone options you know if you can get your sound using an amp and just you know having volume on your bass that that's that's pretty standard but i have found i think when i when i got the bass um because tom's tom was gonna make one for me as well and when I first got, because my one's a stock one that I'm using at the moment, and uh, when I got it, I figured, well, when I have one made for me, I'll just have a volume control, and I'll get rid of all this circuitry, because I'm not going to use it. But as it happens, I, I use it all the time, so I'd have to now <laughs> have, essentially, I would have to just have exactly the same as a stock instrument now. Yeah, cool. Do you think, Joe... Um bass players are more adventurous in terms of the type of gear they might end up playing it seems to me like you know bass builders can can throw all sorts of crazy things at a at an instrument whereas with guitars it, there seems to be like either a really a very vintage camp even with new builders or a very modern kind of a camp it seems uh, it seems um, like guitar players are not as not as willing to try out different kind of stuff what, what's your take on that today maybe i i i would kind of i i almost think it's down to it's more down to taste i think bass players generally for some reason are pretty tasteless 
and uh, so <laughs> they, they yes it's true but like to, to look at to look at guitars I, I agree they are in two camps at the moment you've got the vintage stuff which is obviously absolutely brilliant there are some incredible old school things out there but the 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 modern market at the moment i think is is the strongest it's ever been mm-hmm. for guitar like like extended range becoming commonplace yeah you know, sure. sort of eight strings becoming a legitimate thing and 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 unlike seven sevens i always view of like this is just a slight variation on a normal guitar an eight string requires a completely different you know it's a, it's a different instrument and i love that it's it's becoming accepted it's not quite as niche as it always was and fan fret stuff is becoming huge like mm. so you know ormsby being a, a sort of great example of it but there are loads of loads of other brands out there making interesting finishes like stuff like lumen lay dots are becoming commonplace it's like the the modern market is really thinking and designing even like strandberg with their with their square um necks yeah right and, sure and stuff like that and and this the the increase in, in kind of headless instruments and i just i i love the way guitar is going at the moment because i love both banks like my favorite guitar in the world is probably an es175 mm-hmm. but I, I love that that there's all this great modern stuff that's that's trying to push players to be better and that's one thing vintage stuff will never do um because you know it's not designed around playability it's designed around vibe and i i love that there's this modern market pushing for it on the on the bass side i i kind of think you know that fender sort of nailed everything with with the precision and the and the jazz bass and um and sort of the the modern stuff i think generally speaking is quite tasteless like I, i don't like active circuitry and i've never i've never understood why anyone would want to remove the sound of the wood from their sort of tone that that always struck me as being a bit of a weird one um and 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 so the advancements in bass i feel kind of stopped in the 80s and and we're still that's what we've got like most people now play passive instruments a 34 inch scale a fender style like it's really become about that and i think whilst there are some great tiny companies out there like like franz base like stonefield franz base are doing some really interesting stuff um at the moment and and like you know a heap of others like acg are doing some great stuff at the moment and they're all these brilliant companies making modern bases but they are so boutique i think a bass player might be i think you might be right in but I think a bass player is more inclined to buy a, a a one-off custom instrument than a guitar player. I think guitar players like to have brands on their headstock, and I think bass players want to have something made specifically for them. Mm-hmm. But I think I think guitarists are better at being tasteful. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Nice. You mentioned earlier um, a ridiculously big pedal board. Um, I I sort of get the idea following you. Um, that your pedal board is a is a work in progress like it seems to be always changing but if you had um well for the gigs you've played recently what what's what's on your board at the moment what what are your must-haves and what else do you toss in say for um, a polymath show sure sure well actually i because i've just got an ms3 it's 
I've downsized to a, a pedal train junior. I was using like a, a Novo 32 size board uh-huh. before. Um, but so I have, I have downsized. I'll probably upsize again though. Um, but, but essentials are, um, I, I have to have like a compressor at the start and a, um, a preamp at the end, um, of my chain. So at the moment I'm using like a, the, the new boss, uh, bass compressor because yeah. it's like a multi-band compressor and i normally like vintage style compressors like i was using a bright onion baking powder or like an mxr dynacomp i really okay. love those yep, yep. they they over squash everything and i kind of like that but re- recently i've been playing this multi-band it pro- probably won't forever i think i will go back to a vintage style like the mxr super comp i think is one of the cooler sounding compressors and and maybe like um the philosopher's tone uh, the pigtronics philosopher's tone yep. i think that's that's killer as well um but the preamp i use is a sansamp vt um which i just use to add like a just a little bit of grit uh, before it hits before it hits the amp like okay. an extra gain stage yeah cool um but then essentials are i have to have vibrato because i use that a lot um which at the moment i'm dealing with through the ms3 yeah, and great. um uh and i and then, um, I guess octave and drive and using them together. So at the moment, I use an old Boss um, OC2, which like I put a picture up of one on Instagram, and it like a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, I was like, I think this is the best compressor ever. And loads of people were like, oh, it doesn't track. And I was like, well, it's not that it doesn't track. It's just it's more of a sort of subby sound. And and it's like you know, I'm playing. I play it through a bass that's in either d standard or drop a like that's pretty low and and it's it's fine wow so it's it's kind of i i think they're cool and um and then my drives vary i've been using like a one of the caroline uh effects i come it's like a shin shinuki oh, i don't know the name of it <laughs> it doesn't say <laughs> it on the pedal which doesn't make it easy but they do a fuzz okay but if you sort of mess with the controls you can kind of get it to sound sound like a drive so that's that's a pretty mainstay at the moment yeah and cool. phaser mxr phase 90 i just love like a slow phase just always on wow always well not always i wish it was always <laughs> on but i have to turn it off occasionally but yeah cool do you um with your drive sounds do you do you let a bit of clean signal leak through as well is that is the caroline uh, set up for that that is actually something I am I have been working on um, we're we're switching up our setup at the moment and mm-hmm. I'm uh, because I've, I'll now have the ms3 which allows me to have uh, two, two outs I have a stereo out so um, what what I'm what I'm doing now is is running my affected signal to my Ashdown ABM 600 going into a, a big 15 inch cab and then I'm running a, um, I'm running another a clean signal into a Roland Jazz chorus, one of the JC40s. Oh, wow. Cool. Um, and so I'm using that so that I have this like super, and that would deal with all the high mids, which yeah, is what yeah, you yeah. lose when you, when you stack drives and stuff. And I, uh-huh. I stack a couple of drives normally, and well, it's 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 fine. It's so venue dependent and and kind of. You know, it really can vary. It can end up being so soupy and muddy. And when you're the only other instrument other than a guitar, 
if Tim's ever, you know, not holding down sort of the fundamentals, that those high mids, I really need to operate as a rhythm guitarist as well. Mm-hmm. And so running into a jazz chorus is, is kind of the solution. We've been, me and Tim have been hooking up in a rehearsal studio and, and trying out loads of different amp and effect combinations to try mm-hmm. and make everything bigger. The, the problem that we have is is the record that we've just recorded is impossible to play live. Okay. So we've got to work out a new way to do it because we layered up so much stuff. Like yeah. Most of it has two drum kits and like <laughs> a quite, I think we, we recorded one, one track and we like, we, it took us ages to do it because Pro Tools couldn't quite deal with um, the 200 guitar tracks that were in one section. Oh, what? <laughs> wow. So yeah, so it's uh, a, <laughs> We're trying to figure out ways to sound like that live now. <laughs> there you go, Matt Knight. We need a, a 200 times guitar pedal that just makes you sound <laughs> like 200. Yeah, that's, that's, that's all you need. That's all you need. That's cool, man. That's great. Man, the more, the more you talk about the record, the more I can't wait to hear it. That's great. So, um, so yeah. So what happens between now and November and, and the record coming out for you guys? um we well actually we we've got to get we we've we've decided to expand the band because of the record so okay the record has a lot of organ on it chris our chris our drummer plays uh like a fender Rhodes on most tracks and it's it's pretty high in the mix and there's quite a lot of mellotron on the record as well okay cool and we also got our, our friend uh another chris uh who runs a um, like a studio called Ithaca Audio, we got him in to play saxophone on, on like a good portion of the record, probably half of the record. And then we we'd also set up like a separate percussion kit. Um, and and our drummer was there's there's always like shaker and other bits and bobs going on on every track. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of like this record's going to sound this this the live version of this record is going to sound naff if we try and go out and do it with one guitar one bass and a drum kit okay so yep. we need to get a second percussionist a an organ player and a sax player for for the live show at least okay cool. so we're sort of we're we're working out working out who we can get on board we've got the sax player we just need to get a percussionist and a and an organ player on board and and then i guess we'll be performing as the polymath band rather than polymath but. okay cool so multiplication that that kind of ties in yeah exactly (laughs) cool very very cool and um and are there plans for um yeah the the tours lined up after the release or is that still to be yeah that's right yeah november will be the tour we've sort of we've got to take it easy to an extent because actually two days from now i think is the uh uh the the due date for tim our drummer's uh baby so we're uh oh wow we're We've got to, we we've sort of got to give him some some room to sort of be a dad for a bit before we hit the road oh, again. Sure, sure. So uh, yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. I mean, the thing we're most looking forward to is uh, our favorite our favorite movie is uh, Three Men and a Baby. <laughs> so uh, we've we've already had a friend design a baby grow with the band logo on it, that's and we're gonna cool. get we're gonna have a photo shoot done that's the same as the cover shot for three men and a baby it's gonna be great (laughs) we'll look forward to that very cool (laughs) so joe how can people um yeah where's the best place for people to find you guys on on the net um the 
we're, we're on uh, Bandcamp if you just want to listen to music, which is uh, we are polymath.bandcamp.com, um, uh, uh, I think. And uh-huh. uh, we are also on, uh, you can find us on, on Facebook, which is uh, just um, uh, forward slash uh, polymath band. Yeah. Um, and yeah, th- I guess those are the the best places. We're we're kind of we're website free as it works. We're so DIY, but mm-hmm. yeah, uh, those are those are probably the two best places. Yeah. Cool. And that's polymath with uh, yeah the dash or the hyphen. Um, that's right. Yeah. There's a there's a hyphen. So whenever you're searching on like Spotify or Apple Music, very very unfortunately, although we were the first, <laughs> really? we introduced the hyphen. <laughs> we introduced the hyphen because there's a there's a Scottish trance DJ. Also called Polymath. Oh wow! Unfortunately, unfortunately, some of his uh, like we've been on, we've been playing festivals, and the festivals have put out like Spotify playlists of the bands, <laughs> on, and they've, they've added this this like this dance track. Oh no! <laughs> from us, so it's uh, yeah. So oh, avoid God. avoid those things. Yeah, avoid the the cheap imitators. I think there's a band in the states also called Polymath again without the hyphen. That's right. Yeah, they actually messaged us because they they only they set up quite recently, uh-huh. and they sort of messaged us to sort of say, "Hey, we're we're actually going to call ourselves Polymath." And I was like, "I don't really know what to say." <laughs> I mean, obviously, obviously that's stupid because we've got lots of stuff on the internet. But sh- yeah. sure, we I I sort of got back to them and was like, "Well, we we've kind of got a hyphen anyway." So <laughs> they probably don't have the skinny jeans though. So no, exactly, exactly. That's all good cool well joe thank you so much for um for coming on the show really cool to meet you of your voice is super familiar because i'm a fan of the guitar nerds podcast but <laughs> to talk on in person's been really really cool and um yeah thank you oh man it's, and it's really really exciting about the uh yeah the new album coming out in november yeah 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 that would be great i'm very much looking forward to it it is the most pretentious thing i've ever done <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right, cool. Well, thank you, Joe. Thanks for being on. Thanks very much, Matt. Cheers. Cheers. All right, there you go, my conversation with Joe Branton. And as I mentioned, really great to meet Joe, having uh, followed his band for a little while now. All right, thanks for joining us. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher Radio or iHeartRadio or pretty much anywhere you can get podcasts these days. All right, I'm going to get the Polymath boys to take us out. I'm really digging this stuff and, uh, yeah, totally looking forward to the new record. All right, I'm out of here. My name is Matt Wakeling. You've been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. See you next time.